Attention friends, are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions, uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com. It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard-to-recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For some people, attempts made to rise above the hand they've been dealt are met with success. Other people strive to better themselves and encounter notable resistance, maybe even a sense of futility. This was the case for Reuben Carter. It seemed any time he tried to transcend his impoverished background or society's rampant racism, he was met with yet another obstacle. While he became a highly respected professional boxer and was once named a top middleweight contender by Ring magazine, fate had other plans in store. Events that transpired at the peak of his career would set him back so far that his reputation never recovered. Stick around to hear about the curious case of Reuben Hurricane Carter, a man who beat the odds but was knocked out by misfortune. This case takes place in Patterson, New Jersey, during the 1960s. Back in the late 1800s, New Jersey's third largest city for the beer brewing industry and the factory production of silk. But by the 1960s, the city was afflicted by high unemployment rates 
an incidence of white flight. Many citizens blamed the downfall of the city on the mayor at the time, Frank X. Graves. Local newspaper, the Ashbury Park Press, deemed the mayor one of the most heinous in the city's history. Graves was considered a hands-on, law-and-order leader. During his time as a senator, he pushed for stiff penalties for committing criminal acts, specifically crimes involving firearms. During his first administration as mayor, from 1961 to 1966, he did little to ease growing racial tensions. You could even argue he perpetuated further conflicts between whites and African Americans by leading police raids in a time when the city's economy had collapsed. During this era, Patterson was referred to in the press as the, quote, Wild West of the Passaic, end quote. According to author James S. Hirsch in his book Hurricane, The Miraculous Journey of Reuben Carter, quote, Patterson's swelling black population especially feared the mostly white police force and resented Graves' apparent indifference to their grievances. In fact, Graves' lack of effort to improve the job market and cost of living was perceived as blatant racism. In a time when Patterson's population was 20% black, the message the mayor was sending was clear. He cared more about his intended legacy of law and order than the plight of everyday citizens. This was the social environment Reuben Carter faced just as his life was starting to look promising. Reuben Carter was born on May 6, 1937, in Clifton, New Jersey. His parents, Lloyd and Bertha Carter, were Georgia transplants. Reuben was the fourth of seven children. They were raised mostly in Paseyuk and then Patterson. Bertha was a homemaker, while Lloyd worked two jobs to make ends meet for their large family. He operated an ice delivery service in the early mornings before his long shifts at a nearby rubber factory. Lloyd Carter also served as a deacon at his local Baptist church. He believed hard work was the only way to make it in this world, which led to him being a strict disciplinarian. At the age of eight, little Reuben was put to work cutting ice and helping his father with deliveries. His father's work ethic didn't seem to transfer over to Reuben. When he was nine years old, he and a handful of neighborhood boys were caught stealing clothes from a Patterson store. Being completely by the book, Lloyd turned Reuben into the police for theft. As a result, Reuben was placed on two years probation. For fourth grade, Reuben was moved to a school specifically for unruly students. This did little to deter his rebellious acts. When he was just 11 years old, he stabbed a man. Reuben claimed it was done in self-defence, as the man had made sexual advances and attempted to throw him off a cliff. This explanation mattered little to Lloyd Carter, who moved his son to the Jamesburg State Home for Boys. As of 2018, the state had shuttered the doors on this facility. Jamesburg has a dark history that dates back to 1867. 
For over 150 years, it was the largest juvenile correction centre in New Jersey. It was designed to hold hundreds of male juveniles within its walls, with the ages of inmates ranging from 12 to 23 years old. According to a 2010 federal report, one in three juveniles at the James Burke facility were subjected to sexual abuse. While Carter never specified the abuse to be sexual in nature, he briefly mentioned his experiences there in his autobiography, The Sixteenth Round. He said guards at Jamesburg frequently beat and abused him, a trauma he endured for six years. Finally, he decided he had enough. Like many others who pushed to have Jamesburg shut down, Carter felt he would never lead a successful life if he remained there. Despite there being a 24-hour guard roving the premises, he managed to escape. Carter fled to an aunt's home in Philadelphia. Met with newfound freedom, Carter decided to join the U.S. Army. Even though he was wanted as a fugitive in New Jersey, enlistment officers didn't bother to check his state of residency, and he was approved to enlist. This marked a new chapter in Carter's life. He blossomed in the army, eventually becoming a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division in West Germany. He put on boxing gloves for the very first time after joining the United States Army boxing team. His interest in boxing would change his life immeasurably. Carter returned to Patterson in 1956 after being honorably discharged. For a brief time, he was employed as a tractor-trailer driver. Unfortunately, the law caught up with him, and he was arrested for his escape from the Jamesburg Youth Correctional Centre. Carter was sentenced to 10 months at the Annandale Reformatory, yet another correctional facility for young offenders. When he was released in 1957, Reuben didn't exactly have a smooth transition back into the world. In an incident he would claim was fueled by alcohol, Reuben snatched a woman's purse and assaulted a man on a Patterson Street. For this crime, he served four years in Trenton State Prison. During that time, the prison was often referred to as the Death House, due to its harsh conditions, tiny cells, and the electric chair that sat in full view of inmates. Once his sentence was served, Reuben pivoted his focus to boxing. The day after his release from prison, on September 22, 1961, Reuben Carter fought his first professional fight. It was four rounds and landed him a meager $20. But promoters and fight managers took note very quickly, as Reuben would later write his autobiography. I was in my element now. Fighting was the pulse beat of my heart, and I loved it. Instead of trying to hide Reuben's troubled past, promoters exploited it. They used his criminal record to paint him as a prison-worn fighting machine. The nickname that would make him famous, the Hurricane, came from one promoter who described him in fight advertisements as a, quote, raging, destructive force, end quote. By 1963, when he was 28 years old, the Ring magazine named The Hurricane one of its top 10 middleweight contenders. 
even though he stood at just five foot eight inches tall, making him shorter than most of his competitors. He knocked out 11 of his first 15 professional opponents. Then, in a career-defining moment, Carter won a knockout fight against world champion Emil Griffith. This earned him a ranking of third-place contender for the world middleweight title, which belonged to Joey Giardello at the time. All the attention and success was new terrain for Carter. He used his newfound wealth to flaunt a lavish lifestyle. He could be seen cruising the streets of Patterson in a black Cadillac Eldorado, its headlights surrounded by a silver engraving that read, Reuben Hurricane Carter. He also sported custom-tailored suits, which attracted lots of female attention. In 1963, he married May Thelma Basket. On December 14, 1964, in Philadelphia, Reuben Carter fought against Joey Garadello for the championship match that could have landed him the world middleweight title. In a close 15-round match, Carter was defeated in the fifth round. Sometime that year, an article emerged in the Saturday Evening Post implying Carter was a black militant who believed blacks should fight back against law enforcement if they felt they were being racially pigeonholed. Although he denied ever expressing that stance, Patterson police allegedly began harassing him. They showed up before bouts, using his status as a convicted felon as a reason for wanting to fingerprint and photograph him for their files. Around that time, Carter also discovered the FBI had opened a file on him. There were more fights in 1965 with some wins, but Carter's ranking steadily declined. Out of 40 total fights, he won just 27. Whilst this made him a respectable rival, it didn't place him among the top contenders. The saying goes that it's better to burn out than to fade away. The hurricane burnt out in a single night that would change his life forever. June 16, 1966 marked an evening of violent crime in Patterson. At around 8.15 p.m., Roy Holloway, the black owner of the Waltz Inn, was shot and killed by a white business associate. A short distance away, at 2.30 a.m. the following morning, two black men entered the Lafayette Grill and opened fire. In a shooting that would be later perceived as retaliation for the earlier crime, three white bar patrons were killed. Initially, Patterson detectives thought it could have been a holdup attempt, Money was missing from the tavern's cash register, and the shootings could have been a way to eliminate witnesses. This theory was swiftly abandoned once an investigation was underway. Investigation Lieutenant Vincent DeSimone and Detectives Donald LeConte and Robert Mull led the investigation in Patterson. They had their hands full with four homicides between two crimes in one segment of the neighbourhood. Also occurring on that same night, convicted thieves Arthur Bellow and Arthur Dexter Bradley attempted to rob Ace Sheet Metal Company. Bellow was designated lookout while Bradley broke in. 
By some twist of fate, Ace Sheet Metal was down the block from the Lafayette Grill. While keeping watch for police, Bello claimed to have seen Carter pass in a white car with another man. Both were allegedly clutching guns. Bradley told investigators he had seen Carter at the crime scene carrying a shotgun, but he couldn't identify the second man. According to Bradley, he knew the man he spotted was Carter because he had seen his image in magazines and had even attended a fight of his. Carter had been in the area that night, a fact he didn't try to dispute. During a police interview, he told detectives he had gone out that night while his wife stayed home with their two-year-old daughter. Carter had spent the night in early morning hours in and out of the night spot, one of the most popular black bars in Patterson. He was a regular and even had his own section of the tavern, dubbed by the bar staff as Hurricane's Corner. Early on in the night, Carter had run into John Artis, a 21-year-old truck driver and former track star at Central High School. While the men were mere acquaintances, they had a friendly exchange and spent the better part of the night drinking together. Carter also ran into a neighbor woman he knew, Catherine McGuire. According to Carter, at around 2.15 a.m., he drove Catherine and her mother, Anna Mapes, home from the tavern. He returned to the night spot at around 2.30 and left again within five minutes, this time with Artis and his friend John Royster in tow. Carter had asked the men to accompany him to his house. He had run low on cash and knew if he returned home alone, his wife would try to convince him to stay in for the night. But with the built-in excuse of needing to drive the other men home... Carter would be able to continue his night if they joined him. The night spot was located between Governor and East 18th Streets. Carter lived only a short drive away on 20th Avenue. Between the tavern and his house, Carter was pulled over by police at a checkpoint. After their pit stop at his house, Carter, Artis and Royster returned to the tavern. By that point, it was last call. At around 10 minutes to three, Carter ordered his last drink, chugged it down and left again with his companions. He dropped Royster off at his house before he and Artist headed toward the home of one of Artist's friends. Their car was stopped again at 3 a.m., this time under strong suspicion of being involved in the shooting at the Lafayette Grill. Carter's car and the men's ethnicities matched the description given by witnesses of the perpetrators fleeing the scene. That's when Carter and Artis were brought in for questioning. According to USA Today, the Lafayette Grill was known as a quiet watering hole on the border between Patterson's working-class Lithuanian and black neighborhoods. When the gunmen came through the doors, one carried a 12-gauge shotgun and the other had a 32 caliber pistol. Detective Edward Joseph Callahan Jr. was one of the officers who examined the crime scene. On the morning of the shooting, he allegedly found a bullet and shotgun shell in Carter's vehicle, as well as a spent shotgun shell on the bar floor. After further testing, the bullet shells didn't match those in the shooting, but eerily enough, 
they were the same caliber as the weapons used to commit the crime. This would have been damning evidence if Patterson police had followed protocol, but the shell castings were not logged into evidence until five days later, which seemed like a setup. There were other strong discrepancies in the investigation that would come to light much later. No fingerprints were taken at the crime scene or from the spent shotgun shell. Even though witnesses in the neighbourhood reported hearing the getaway car screeching away at a high speed, no photographs were taken of the tyre tracks. The strongest indication detectives had that Carter and Artis were involved was the testimony of two witnesses, the thieves down the block. Alfred Bellow and Arthur Bradley had come forward several months after the crime. Lieutenant Desimone initially conducted a series of informal and unrecorded interviews with the two men. It was during these on-the-fly conversations that Carter's name was first mentioned. Bellow claimed he was within 15 feet of the men as they headed towards the door of the tavern and described them as light-skinned black men wearing dark clothing. He told detectives he had been walking down the street to buy a pack of cigarettes when he passed the men. Bellow was supposedly able to identify them based on the brief encounter and the white car Carter drove. Other witnesses confirmed the presence of a white sedan with blue and gold license plates, details that matched Carter's car. But Carter was such a well-known local personality that the two men could have just seen Carter driving around town at any given point and remembered the car's description. In October, Carter was called into the station to undergo a polygraph. The test was administered after hours of intense questioning while he was deprived of food and sleep. This brought into question the validity of the results. From the onset of the investigation, detectives had offered John Artis plea bargains and get-out-of-jail deals if he would implicate Carter. Artis held firm that neither of them played a role in the slayings. Despite sloppy police work and evidence that amounted to hearsay, investigators felt they had found the perpetrators. Carter and Artis were arrested on October 15, 1966. Both men were charged with three counts of murder and held without bail. Trial The trial began in May of 1967 at the Superior Court in Patterson. It lasted 31 days and was laden with circumstantial evidence. Right out of the gate, Assistant Prosecutor Vincent E. Hull Jr. made it clear the state was seeking the death penalty. In total, there were seven witnesses for the prosecution. The state star witnesses were Alfred Bellow and Arthur Dexter Bradley. Having two white criminals testify at the trial of two black defendants served as a visual confirmation of racial tensions peaking. By the time the trial had come around, Patterson detectives had made a sweetheart deal with the ex-cons. The men were instructed to testify about what they had witnessed the night of the killings. Their cooperation would result in leniency in the criminal charges they faced for burglary. The problem was, they weren't giving testimony on what they had actually seen that night. Throughout police interviews, 
detectives had asked them leading questions that fed them information about the crime. Bellow stated that he had seen a white car transporting the armed men. He added that he saw Carter and Artis coming out of the Lafayette Grill immediately after the gunfire had ceased. Bradley's testimony confirmed that the car at the scene and the presence of weapons but only identified Carter as a perpetrator. Raymond Brown, Carter's attorney, read Bradley's criminal record to the courtroom. He hoped to discredit Bradley's testimony by offering a laundry list of his prior crimes. Another witness bolstered Bradley and Bellow's testimony. Miss Patricia Graham Valentine had been living in an apartment above the Lafayette Grill when the crime was committed. She said she had heard the gunfire and looked out her window to see two black men leaving the bar immediately after the shooting. They took off in a white car. In a bold move, the defence called Reuben Carter to the stand. He walked the courtroom through his activities that night and offered an alibi. He had been in the company of Catherine Maguire and Anna Mappes at the night spot when the crime occurred. Maguire was called to testify and relayed she had seen Carter at around 3am. But the time she cited was when Carter was being questioned at police headquarters, and that fact made jurors realise she was lying. The flimsy alibi and misconstrued facts cast distrust into the minds of the jurors. One witness for the state dismantled a detail in Carter's timeline. Henry Ludman was the laundry supervisor at Bergen Pines Hospital in Paramus. Anna Mappes, the mother in the mother-daughter pair Carter claimed to have driven home, was employed there. He testified it was impossible that Carter had driven Anna home as she was on vacation at the time. Witness testimony had quickly painted Carter in an untrustworthy light. The defence called Elwood Tuck to the stand. He was the manager of the Nightspot Tavern and a close friend of Carter. He had stated that he had seen Carter at his bar on the morning of June the 17th at around 2.15am. He had noted the time because he was closing off the bar's dancing section in anticipation of closing. That was all he could confirm of Carter's alibi, though. He candidly told the courtroom he couldn't say for sure if Carter had stayed in the bar past that time or left when his back was turned. Two pieces of evidence seemed to be the prosecution's focus. The white sedan seen racing away from the crime scene and the bullets found inside it. For most modern crimes, forensic evidence would have confirmed or denied a match of bullet casings in Carter's car to the ones at the crime scene. But for this 1960s trial, prior to the development of DNA testing, the implication was enough. The prosecution also emphasized the brutality of the murders. The gunman had entered the bar and didn't utter a word before firing. The bartender, George Oliver, had tried to buy his customers an extra reactionary moment by chucking a bottle of beer at one of the shooters. He died at the scene along with a 60-year-old, George Nyokes. 51-year-old, Hazel Tanis, survived the shooting, but died a month later as a result of her injuries. There had been one survivor, 
William Marins, age 42. A bullet had ricocheted near his left eye, which resulted in vision loss. He testified that an officer had visited him in the emergency room of St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was being treated for his injuries. After a brief interview, the officer returned the next day with two men, Carter and Artis. Martins was asked if he could identify them as the gunman, and he said he didn't recognise them. When asked if he identified other men brought to his room as the killers, he said Carter and Artis were the only individuals ever brought to him. Martin's testimony confirmed there had been no other suspects from the very beginning. Witnesses had also testified that the black men they saw at the scene were light-skinned and tall. One of them was said to be sporting a moustache. Neither Carter nor Artis fit witness descriptions. They also had stayed in the area after the shooting, which would later convince some of the public that they were innocent. Guilty men would have left town or hid at home, not stayed out to cruise around. In the end, racial prejudice was enough to make up jurors' minds. They took prosecutors at their word about the revenge theory, that the Lafayette Grill was an act of retaliation for the Waltz-in shooting. It was the only motive they could identify. At the culmination of the 31-day trial, a jury made up of 10 men and 4 women reached a unanimous verdict. Both men were found guilty of first-degree murder. Carter received a sentence of 30 years to life, while Artis got 15 years to life. While they narrowly escaped the death penalty, their lives were still being sacrificed for a crime neither man had committed. Carter faced his second stint at Trenton State Prison. The conditions hadn't really changed since his last sentence. He spent most of his time self-isolating, eating alone in his cell, and poring over legal texts in hopes of finding a way to get a new trial. The former boxer would later tell CNN, When I was in prison in 1966, that was it for me as far as prize fighting was concerned. I was fighting for my life not for a prize in a ring and not with boxing gloves and referees. I was fighting for my life in the absolute dungeon called Trenton State Prison. Because of Carter's celebrity, he wasn't your average prisoner. He landed a publishing deal for his autobiography and had received a $10,000 advance. That money was put towards a new defense team. One reporter from the New York Times, even tracked down Bellow and Bradley to document their statements about that night. That's when the small-time criminals recanted their testimony. They admitted publicly that they had lied to earn favour with law enforcement. After that, Carter and Artis filed a motion for a retrial. The motion was denied, so they filed an appeal, citing the widespread racial turmoil in Jersey at the time. The case received renewed attention in 1975 when the Hurricane Trust Fund was established. It was a committee made up of different celebrities and media personalities intent on defending Carter. International boxing superstar Muhammad Ali was national co-chair and he was joined by other household names, including Stevie Wonder, Burnt Reynolds, Ellen Burstyn and Coretta Scott King. 
On October 17, 1975, Muhammad Ali led a march to the state capital in Trenton, made up of 1,600 people. All who attended the rally were hoping to get the governor's attention so he would grant a retrial for both Carter and Artis. Another attention-grabbing effort was made by famed singer-songwriter Bob Dylan. Dylan penned the song Hurricane in January of 1976, which appeared on the album Desire. During that fall's promotional tour for the album, Dylan held a benefit concert in New York's Madison Square Garden, raising $100,000 for Carter's defense. By that point, knowledge of the inconsistencies and racial biases of the investigation and subsequent trial were well publicized. Faced with intense public scrutiny, the New Jersey Supreme Court overturned the convictions of both men. A suppressed recording of Bello had also surfaced that captured a detective promising, quote, favorable treatment in exchange for his testimony. Carter and artists were released on bail and promptly underwent a retrial in November of 1976. But testimony given about the angry blacks that had gathered outside the scene of the first shooting drove home the state's theory of retaliation yet again. Arthur Bellow had recanted his recantation, serving as a witness for the prosecution yet again. He was the only witness who placed Carter and Artis at the crime scene. A second jury found both men guilty of first-degree murder and delivered the same sentence. Artis and Carter were returned to prison and continued to file appeals with the state of New Jersey over the next nine years. These efforts all met with no success. Carter's second child, a son, was born six days after the second guilty verdict. Shortly after, Carter's wife filed for divorce after finding out Rubin had an affair with a supporter while waiting for the second trial. John Artis was released on parole in 1981 while Carter remained imprisoned. Finally, in 1985, federal judge H. Lee Sorokin of the U.S. District Court decided to review the case. He overturned the convictions, deeming them unconstitutional. According to the New York Times, the judge made this ruling after concluding that prosecutors had fatally infected the trial by resorting without evidence to the racial revenge theory and that they had withheld evidence disproving Mr. Bellow's identifications. Reuben Carter was released from prison in 1985. While he was now a free man, his name still hadn't been cleared. The prosecution made several attempts to get their convictions reinstated. But luckily, federal appeals court rejected those motions. Carter fell away from the public eye. He relocated to Toronto and joined a commune where he met the woman who became his second wife, Lisa Peters. In the 1990s, Carter left the commune and ended his marriage. Finally, in 1988, the Supreme Court formally dismissed the charges against Carter and Artis. 22 years had passed since the initial indictments. Carter devoted the remainder of his life to fighting against false convictions and the death penalty. 
1993, the World Boxing Council awarded Carter the honorary championship title belt. To Carter, his days of being a serious middleweight contender must have felt like a lifetime ago, or someone else's life entirely. Carter's life story had attracted enough public interest over the years to inspire the 1999 film Hurricane, which starred Denzel Washington and received an Oscar nod. Though the attention must have been nice, Carter directed his focus on helping others facing wrongful convictions. From 1999 to 2005, he served as director of the Association in Defence of the Wrongly Convicted, using his fame to attract attention from the Canadian press for the organisation. He also served on the board of directors for both the Southern Centre for Human Rights in Atlanta and the Alliance for Prison Justice in Boston. In 2004, Carter founded the nonprofit Innocence International. Through his organization and speaking engagements, he raised awareness about America's flawed criminal justice system and the role race plays in it. While the efforts he made to ignite change were admirable, in 2021, we are still plagued with similar injustices over 50 years after the first conviction. We may never know what really happened that night. No other suspects were ever arrested or charged in connection with the Lafayette Krill murders. What we do know is that Carter was a victim of racial profiling and spent a large percentage of his life behind bars for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. On April 20th, 2004, Reuben Carter passed away in his sleep due to complications from prostate cancer. He was 76. In an opinion piece published in the New York Daily News several months before his passing, Carter expressed gratitude to the judge who had cleared his name. He said, I lived in hell for the first 49 years and have been in heaven for the past 28 years. To live in a world where truth matters and justice, however late, really happens, that would have been heaven enough for us all. After years in exile, the storm had settled and the hurricane could finally rest in peace. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.